The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adam Tooze. In today's interview, we talked about Adam's view on whether the contemporary far right can meaningfully be characterised as fascist in the sense of being closely comparable to Italian fascism and German Nazism of the interwar period and World War II. The interview was prompted by a recent conversation Adam had with Nick Mulder, Anton Jaeger and Dominic Luster on the Eurotrash podcast as well as a subsequent post on his chartbook blog, which I'd very much encourage listeners to check out, and you can find links to both in the description of today's episode. The interview took place before the furore over Gary Lineker and the BBC blew up, and for clarity's sake, and since we didn't address the issue of Lineker's intervention in the interview, it's worth saying that when government ministers speak of migrant invasions and migrant swarms, we are indeed, as Lineker suggested, seeing language very much reminiscent of the darkest moment in modern history. Those who are attacking Lineker for associating the UK government's migration bill with the language of 1930s Germany are not doing so because of their commitment to passing the specific conjuncture in which Nazism emerged, but rather to downplay the viciousness of the government's policy and to score another victory in the culture war. That said, as Adam points out in today's interview, by too closely drawing a parallel between the far right of today and the fascism of the early and mid-20th century, there is a risk that one can miss the specificity of the conditions that enabled the far right during that period and the very different conditions that pertain today. In the interview, we discussed the key causal factors that allowed fascism to emerge in the early 20th century, whether describing the Bolsonaros, the Le Pens and the Orbans of this world as fascist may be analytically wrong but tactically effective, and we also talked about how close the Latin American dictatorships of the 1970s and 80s are to the fascist model. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Set Fear on Fire, the feminist call that set the Americas ablaze by Lastesis. After the feminist art collective Lastesis created their performance, A Rapist in Your Path, in their native Chile, it went viral across the globe becoming the anthem of the grassroots feminist movements in South America and around the world. Set Fear on Fire, the feminist call that set the Americas ablaze, is their new manifesto, an unrepentant tour de force that moves through rage, femicide, abortion, homophobia, feminist art and the oppression of the state to argue for a feminist world based on collective struggle and visionary political art. Set Fear on Fire, the feminist call that set the Americas ablaze by Lastesis, is out this month from Verso Books and one of their March Verso Book Club reading selections. And now to today's interview. Adam Tooze is Professor of History at Columbia University. He's the author of Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, and Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, 
and you can find links to our previous conversations on those two books in the description of today's interview. If you'd like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Today's episode was partly prompted by the conversation you recently had with Nick Mulder, Anton Jaeger and Dominic Luster on the Eurotrash podcast, which was on the question of how to define fascism and whether the term is appropriate in the case of the far-right politicians, parties and, and movements of our era, which are variously described as fascist or authoritarian or right populist, proto-fascist, neo-fascist and, and so on. In that conversation, which I'd very much encourage listeners to check out, you and the other participants discussed whether classical fascism is unique to the interwar period and the Second World War, or whether it in fact extends into the Cold War, and whether conditions that enable fascism on the interwar model exist in our own time. Now, in a subsequent post on your blog, Chartbook, you wrote that if what we aim for is a general historical understanding of fascism, I would argue that we have to see it as shaped by three framing conditions. Number one, the experience of total war. Two, the active threat of class war and revolution. Three, the shadow of the end of history as defined by the rise of Anglo-American global hegemony. And you've argued that the contemporary right cannot plausibly be described as fascist because of the absence of those conditions. So if we start with the emergence of fascism and Nazism in the early 20th century, can you say a bit about why those three conditions are so important in the development of fascism as, as mass movements that were able to take state power? And obviously, there's a, there's a question about the conflation of fascism with the German case, but perhaps we can, we can talk about that separately. Well, you could start with Mussolini, who, who's the, you know, the progenitor of fascism in, its, you know, in the, the, the movement that called itself fascist, the Italian fascist party. He fits all three of those criteria. So he was he um, made a lot of his his status as a as a war veteran in World War One. He was a renegade ex socialist who became the hammer of the post war socialist movement and the Vienna, you know the radicalization of the Italian left after World War One. And he was also an early critic of Wilsonian liberalism. He founds the fascist party in Italy. The movement really gets going in 1919 at the moment of greatest enthusiasm for Wilson. Wilson actually made a tour of Italy. And so Italian fascism, the, you know, the original form of fascism really exemplifies all of those three defining elements. And um, in the case of German national socialism, which emerges out of that same post-war conjuncture it takes a little longer for all three of the key elements to come together because the conjuncture in which the Nazis take power ultimately, which is, you know, 15 years after the end of the war, the revolutionary threat is somewhat less than it was 10 years earlier at the height of the crisis of the Weimar Republic after World War One. But it too is a movement shaped by those three defining features by the memory of total war, which for many of the young guys above all that joined the party in the late 20s and early 30s is a memory or kind of imagining because they were too young to actually fight in World War I. The threat of revolutionary politics, which was acute in Germany in the early 20s and by the early 1930s, takes the form of a very powerful Moscow-loyal Stalinist Communist Party. And by the late 20s, in Hitler's thinking, a very explicit, this is very manifest in his second book, so-called The Collection of speeches he gave in the late 20s. 
you know, a very explicit location of the National Socialist Movement as the one party that can lead Germany to face up to the fundamental challenge of the period, which is to face up to the threat of really American dominance by the late 20s and early 1930s. So between those two, you know, you, you in both cases see this trifecta of factors defining their movement, and, and they're both very explicit about it. On the point about challenging American power, of course, you've talked about and written about the early period of fascist Italy when Mussolini was you know, famously the darling of Wall Street, uh, pursued a policy of austerity, comes to power, and the first thing he does is makes a lot of uh, state employees unemployed and so on. How do you make sense, given that you view that point about challenging Anglo-American hegemony as, as so important? Because uh, I, I presume you wouldn't want to say that Mussolini wasn't a fascist in that early period and then, be- then becomes so. Yes, I agree. There's an ambiguity there. I mean, it's in part tactical, I think. It's also a question of, you know, what the what the conditions of the deal are, really. You know, I think Mussolini's opposition is above all to a sort of a sanctimonious Wilsonian liberalism. Doing deals with Wall Street is a rather different matter. And, um, you know, what Wall Street is looking for is not really a toning down of other elements of his politics, but simply you know, compliance in financial terms. But you're right that to that extent, Mussolini and Hitler are rather different figures in that Mussolini's regime does indeed position itself as a collaborator with with American capital. I mean, not in the same way as the liberals like Francesco Nitti, who is the sort of classic, he was known as Il Americano, like the Mussolini is sort of walking a fine line of compliance, mobilization of resources for the purposes of his regime. Um, you know, occasional challenges to the League of Nations order. But I think what really opens the door to the Hitlerine version, the full-blown, as it were, historic challenges, is a historic weakening of American capital. So it's one, you know, it's one thing to oppose Wilson. It's quite another to oppose Wall Street in the early 1920s. But after you've had the the Great Depression and the, the collapse of the global system anchored on American money and the gold standard, now, once that's gone after, well, 1931 is the, really the key moment in this, then, you know, the door really opens to Mussolini's aggression in, in um, North Africa and in, in Libya and then ultimately in Ethiopia, Japanese, in fact, aggression against China. And on the part of Hitler's regime, immediate repudiation of, of Germany's foreign debts and a really aggressive posture against uh, Germany's creditors. On those shifts in fascist Italy from that position of an accommodation with the US to outright conflict, I mean, I know, you know, you wouldn't want to draw any close parallels between classical fascism and and, and the right of today. But nonetheless, does the fact that there was that transition, that there was a time when Mussolini seemed to be a more sort of pragmatic politician, and then circumstances change and he pursues a much more a more aggressive course, is that a reason to be more concerned about the contemporary far right? Because one of the arguments made is that, you know, these, these people aren't really serious. They show no real desire to break with globalization. They don't have any of the ambition that we expect, even a party that has a real post-fascist lineage like the Fratelli d'Italia in, in Italy it seems very unlikely to pursue a more transformational project. But if the circumstances change, could could that change? Well, I think you, the question is, do they really have the motivation, right? And that's where the other two factors come into play. I mean, the driving force, the driving animating force of both Nazism and Italian fascism, fascism is really threefold, right? So there is the the emerging structure of power, which 
which is Anglo-American financial hegemony, the conditions of which wax and wane and collapse catastrophically after 1929. So that's, you know, goes from being a sort of long range threat to a facilitating factor, really, of the escalation of the regimes in the early 1930s. But the other two factors, you know, have to be in play as well. And, And the first of those is the immediate experience of total war, and not just the experience of it, but the profound sense that that kind of struggle, that kind of war, the life and death stakes that it engages, the, the physical experience of, 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 of mass death and exposing oneself to the risk of it, that would enable, for instance, the Hitler youth to have as its slogan, I was born to die for Germany. Right? That was the official slogan of, of the Boy Scout movement of, of Nazi Germany. Now, that kind of consciousness is a key element of fascism. It's an incredibly high-stakes kind of politics that is demanding that everything is put on the line. And your immediate enemy in doing that is some sort of cosmopolitan, often, in, of course, in the German thinking of this, Jewish-inspired global Marxism, or, you know, in, and, and after 19... 19- 17, of course, then the, the Bolshevik regime in, in the Soviet Union, which is first thought of as a sort of force of anarchy and chaos and civil war and famine and collapse, which is why it has to be opposed in its early history. And then it too changes so that by the late 20s and the early 30s, you're dealing with a consolidated, increasingly impressive regime, which actually becomes the inspiration for various types of militarist fantasy in Germany, because the Soviet Union seems to be doing it more seriously. So you need those two elements as well. And so, sure, fascism is a politics that's capable of changing its spots and becoming more aggressive. But you, you need to believe that, you know, any of the current post-fascism, shall we say, had that real impetus. You know, you can get bits of it from, I don't know, great replacement theory type conspiracies. In, in the US, there's all this talk of a civil war that's looming. You know, you can see, you can see strains where I think it would be you know, it wouldn't be a great idea to, to draw too stark a line, but do they really add up to anything that's equivalent to the real presence of you know, Bolshevism and the real presence of giant, extremely radical and mobilized labor movements across Western Europe and anything even remotely like the actual experience of total war? No, I don't think they do. And that's the basis on which I'm really skeptical about you know, drawing too strong you know, analogies between the present and the past. I think the closest, I mean, when we had that conversation, I think it was Nick was saying that, you know, one could think of Latin America in the 1970s and early 1980s as as truly exhibiting some of these features, right? To an extent imagined, but the kind of global Cold War extends the logic, you know, deep into the late um, 20th century of a kind of life and death confrontation with communism, which is also thought of as an international conspiracy. And so you can think of some of the right-wing regimes in Latin America, for instance, in the 70s and early 80s as legitimate heirs to fascism. Latin America, of course, is a continent that was largely spared the ravages of total war in the 20th century. Yes, and there doesn't seem that sort of expansionist impulse in in Latin America. I suppose another another aspect of that is that perhaps with the exception of Peron in Argentina, the Latin American regimes don't seem to be inclined to try and stir up a lot of popular ferment. They're not looking for people to be very politically active in a way that characterized fascism in Nazi Germany. Yes, I think that's right. I think I think you can think of that either from the dimension of fascism in a sense mirroring 
the mass mobilization practices of the left. You know, after all, the, the interwar period was one in which the left too availed itself of the left wore uniforms too. They marched in serried ranks. They, yeah, the, the Red Front. So. And they, exactly, and and so it's a combination, if you like, of a of a socialist militancy of a large organized type, and on the other hand the legacies of mass militarism. I mean, it's important to emphasize, I think, particularly in continental Europe, just how all-pervasive the influence of conscription was from the late 19th century onwards. And so you, you have these institutions of socialization of young men, which socialize them as these sort of mass bodies who are being trained, socialized to accept the idea that, you know, in extremists, one has to pay the ultimate price and make the ultimate sacrifice. One has to be willing to engage in a sort of collective practice that ultimately can can end in death and that can involve both killing and being killed. And I mean, those are sort of vital ingredients, really. I think for the the politics of historic fascism, and they just they progressively attenuate over the course of the twentieth century, so that by the early twenty first century, where mass conscription has really become a, a rare thing in, in in societies around the world, whereas it was. You know, the essence of nation building in the 19th century, the late 19th century, again, it seems to me that the, you know, we're, we're not, the forms may be there, the ideology may be there up to a point, but we're not, we're not really grasping the, the, you know, the real social content here. And so the kind of mass class contestation that you described, that, that can't be substituted for the effects of the financial crisis, say, the increasing inequality from the late 70s, stagnating economic growth declining trust in institutions, those can't perform a similar role in your opinion because they don't have the same sort of mobilizing effect. I think the crucial thing here is the, you know, the mediating tissue is the difference between inequality and class formation. You can, you can have, you know, as we have really experienced since the 1970s, rising inequality and the disintegration of class structure and the paralysis, disempowerment, ultimately evisceration and shrinkage of organized labor as a, as a force of social contestation and a, a political force. Almost the opposite dynamic. Yes, what we're seeing is a kind of atomized version of inequality. I mean, it's also worth saying that all of this takes place in, in the advanced economies anyways at much higher levels of per capita income. So if you're looking at, you know, the interwar European societies, they're at middle, middle income levels in modern terms, as, as far as we're able to make these kind of comparisons meaningfully over time. But the best data that we have suggest, you know, that European societies at the time were on like four or five thousand dollars per head in purchasing power parity adjusted terms, which is, you know, an emerging market type of economy. So if you a society like that with high levels of inequality produces misery at the level of a South Africa in the present day, right? So if you then add a South African level of unemployment on top of that, you obviously have highly explosive conditions. And then the question is, how are antagonisms, how are resentments organized, articulated? And in the early 20th century, you had this rather unique combination of the classic forms of mass organization in, in huge mass parties. You have large-scale union organization. You have the repertoire of, of parliamentary politics operating as well at the same time. You have the emergence of a new media system, both in the form of the sort of yellow press, so the tabloid press, and, of course, also newsreel radio. 
So it's a it's an explosive combination of different historical elements, bits of which you can see in the present day, but not that configuration, which really makes the politics, both the democratic and the socialist, and also, however, the fascist politics of that period, uniquely intense and and articulated on you know in in terms of the scale, sort of fossilized regimes like the North Korean regime, sort of exhibit like weird. Jurassic Park kind of versions of the of, of that early 20th century politics translated down to the 21st century. I mean, you could see them still, of course, in all of the communist uh, regimes in the 1980s. But I think there they'd already taken on a sort of somewhat pastiche quality. You know, North Korea is the the regime which, in the present day, exhibits it in its kind of quintessential form. What do you make of the fact that the contemporary far right so often acts as if we actually were in some sort of pre-revolutionary situation and, and for instance, pretends that Lula in Brazil really is some sort of communist and a dire threat to the Brazilian middle class? I mean, clearly we can see why right-wing leaders and media operators might cynically deploy those arguments, but what accounts for the number of people who seem to take those narratives seriously and who really do seem to view the left as on the march and as seriously threatening their economic conditions and their cultural values? I mean, you can see the same thing with all the American talk about an impending civil war and, you know, World War Three, and which was a key part of the of the sort of militia mobilization in the which is still ongoing in parts of the United States, right? I mean, there was that extraordinarily alarmist account in the I think the most recent issue of the Atlantic magazine, um, you know, the sort of bastion of centrist American liberal commentariat. And um there's a piece there about, you know, the impending civil war in the United States and the risk of places like Michigan and Portland, Oregon exploding into civil war conditions. I mean, it's hard not to simply shrug and say, well, what do you expect? You know, this is right wing entrepreneurship. In Latin America, it, and, and this extends all the way up to Florida and the United States, you know, the bits of the United States political system where the real Cold War anti-communist rhetoric still bites are those where the connections to Latin America are most intense because, you know, Lula may not be a socialist of the old type, but he descends, he literally is a veteran of a movement which in the 1970s and early 1980s went toe-to-toe with a military dictatorship. And so there's a real hangover there of that kind of radical politics in the same way as there is in something like Black Lives Matter in the United States, a genuine a hangover of, you know, an earlier era of militancy, of Black Panther-style militancy, of a genuine challenge to the existing order as we know it, and a willingness also to embrace, you know, the riot, for instance, as a legitimate and at times effective means, at least of local politics, and certainly as a way of creating a kind of national, you know, sense of intensity and focus on a set of issues. So, you you can kind of see why that environment creates the space for right-wing political entrepreneurs to launch that kind of rhetoric. And uh, if you have news media like Fox News in the United States, which amplify this, then then you can you know keep it running for a while. How would you make sense of it in somewhere like the UK? I mean, the, the discourse doesn't have quite the same temperature, but but nonetheless, there is this narrative which is you know actively promoted by figures in the government that there is this liberal left conspiracy that controls the media the educational institutions and also parts of the government apparatus itself i mean just today we have suella braverman referring to her own uh, civil servants as part of this liberal blob yeah i think there's different levels here aren't there there's the sort of liberal blob there's the sort of woke 
tyranny. And then there's the sort of third story, which is rather different from both of those, which is some sort of, you know, socialist revolutionary threat. And presumably in the British case, the kind of Corbyn wing of the Labour Party was the representative of that. And and each one of those allows right-wing political entrepreneurs to position themselves as, you know, respectively expressing the voice of the silent majority against the liberal blob or fighting back against the totally unrepresentative radical culture that betrays the foundations of British or Western civil or whatever. And then thirdly, defending private property and people's rightful stake in, you know, their hard-won assets against expropriation, you know. And so each one of those would be a a potential axis of mobilization. Yeah, you know, presumably in Britain right now, the sort of revolutionary expropriation threat just doesn't have much plausibility. So you go with one of the other ones. I don't know, far bit for me to want to try and I mean I just think it's fairly superficial sort of obvious forms of just sort of populist appeal, right? You're just you're you're appealing to you know, if you look at those social value survey studies that folks did on on the background of the Brexit electorate, for instance, you know, in a society like Britain, there's a solid minority of people who, in the terms of like the Frankfurt School social psychological surveys, exhibit profoundly authoritarian traits. You know, and there were those studies that showed that you know the strong correlation between Brexit voting and supporting the public flogging of sex offenders. And clearly, uh, you know, an unscrupulous right-wing politician can, you know, make hay by sort of moving backward forwards in that in that kind of ideological space. You know, the sadistic treatment of asylum seekers and so on, that it all fits into that same pattern. It doesn't, to me, add up to a fascist politics, but it's clearly authoritarian, playing on these sorts of, you know, populist right-wing themes. And it has a you know kinship with certain elements of the fascist appeal. Not everyone who voted for you know Hitler, not everyone who mobilized around Mussolini, you know, was in the business of fighting a global anti-communist or anti-Semitic crusade. You know, not everyone who voted for those parties wanted to, you know, challenge emerging American hegemony. Many of them were just authoritarians who quite like putting a stick about occasionally and beating up some socialists and you know, restoring conventional order. And if you look at if we parse out the 37% odd that voted for the Nazis in the you know the last free and fair election they contested in 32, well, it's the last but one, actually. It's the summer one where they got the maximum vote, summer of 32. Clearly, there are substantial elements in that constituency, notably voters who are coming to the Nazis from the conservative and right liberal parties who would probably fit that kind of profile. On the sort of exaggerated fear of the left, is it possible that although there is no comparison between the left of today and of the early and middle 20th century, but nonetheless, is it plausible that the right might have some sort of you know premonitions of the future? I mean, we know, of course, that the right, particularly in the US and the UK, is really struggling to make inroads with with the young, and, and some you know some of that polling is pretty dramatic when it comes to a younger cohort. And for all of its weakness and very nascent character, it's pretty remarkable that there is, you know, an active socialist movement in the United States. I mean, you know, I remember when I was first becoming politically active in the early 2000s, and that was, you know, sort of unimaginable. Yes, something has shifted there. But I mean, the, you know, active socialist movement in the United States is, I don't know, comparable to the left wing of the Labour Party. It's not, we're not talking about a movement that is asking for anything more than a, you know, decent welfare state, perhaps the consideration of public ownership or one or two obvious 
corporate entities, which is sort of the radical end of their agenda, the Green New Deal as a sort of, you know, win-win national mobilization around, you know, a new green industrialism. You know, there's a discussion over wealth tax on the left wing of the Democratic Party, but we're, again, not talking about expropriation, but, um, you know, attacks on the egregious and, and outrageous extreme wealth of a tiny fraction of American society. So the opinion polling in the US is remarkable that amongst young people, I think, you know, effective attitudes towards socialism are more favorable than they are towards capitalism. There has been a profound change since 2008 and the saving graces of US capitalism like big tech. It's one of the great historic coincidences that social media and the new iPhone came out more or less at the same time as the financial crisis. And I think there is a they performed a serious legitimating function. That's, I think, all massively attrited in the last, you know, five or six years. So the, the, you know, this disillusionment with American capitalism is is quite far-reaching. But again, we're a very. I mean, that's really the emergence of the, you know, the basis for a, you know, social democratic or green politics in the United States. It's not the emergence of a, of a, of a truly radical threat of the type that. The, you know, that was present even in the United States in the 1930s. The American Communist Party was a considerable force in American politics in the 30s, present in the American labor movement, in solidarity with African-American mobilization, you know, in a society that was much less consolidated in national terms and much more heavily influenced by recent migration from Europe. And with, you know, genuine socialist traditions across the US, but in the agrarian sector, but also in many cities. So, we are in the US too a long way removed from that kind of world, even though it is undeniably true that yes, a space is open for a, you know, a left social democratic politics in the US of a type, which I agree 20 years ago would have been pretty hard to imagine. Do you think though that just a kind of shift in the direction of travel can have a really outsized effect? Because thinking about it coming from a left perspective, you know, there were a lot of self-described radical socialists and even communists who were involved with and supported the Corbyn project even if that wasn't what the agenda was shaped around. As you say, both in the US and, and Britain, the, the agenda is basically social democratic, but it was able to inspire a lot of enthusiasm from people way to the left of where the left of the Labour Party is. And if it can in inspire that kind of enthusiasm on the left, does it have a similarly outsized effect on the right in provoking their fear of this being the first steps towards a much more radical moment? I think that makes sense. And you know, standing further back, I don't think there's any doubt, and one shouldn't underestimate, you know, we've we've not spoken about it here, and it's perhaps not the agenda of this conversation, but the transformation in, in gender relations, in the politics of sexuality and of gender identity are, after all, really rather radical, not to say revolutionary experiments, and certainly from the point of view of somebody who's of a conservative mindset, an absolutely fundamental challenge to a whole series of you know, supposedly naturally founded verities that they hold very, very dear indeed. So if you start from that angle rather than from the sort of, it's a false distinction really, but from the angle of sort of materialism and, you know, property rights and so on, you know, the revolution is upon us, right? And it has been lived out in a really, you know, expandingly and increasingly comprehensive way for half a century. And I don't think we should underestimate the dimension and significance of that in defining reactionary politics in the in the current moment. And and one could, from from the angle of women's history, from the angle of the history of feminism, also of course say that one of the historic 
you know, dialectics which define the emergence of classic fascism in the early 20th century was a gender backlash and anti-feminist politics. I don't think it, you could say it was the central element, but it was certainly one of the components of the fascist coalition. You know, it's an ultra-masculinist politics. It's not therefore a politics which excludes women altogether, but it's, it introduces them and nationalizes them in this subordinate, sexualized, gendered, and subordinate position in relation to a masculinity, which is which is at the core of what the fascist project is about. And I think it would be quite reasonable to say that the you know, one of the more genuine and bona fide types of reactionary politics, which is manifesting itself in the present moment, and is tied up, you know, with the debates about, you know, woke and anti-woke politics, is precisely a gender and a sexuality backlash politics. That revolution is, you know, much more comprehensively and actually ongoing, if certainly in, you know, university settings in, in many other parts of the public sphere. And certainly in Britain, at least, I mean, I think this is probably less the case in the US, but quite a lot of liberals have, have been drawn to the other side of that, that revolution, I suppose. Yes, it, no, it, it's, it's very polarizing. And I think in, important to understand as a, you know, a genuinely dynamizing, you know, if you're asking me and you're pushing me to sort of recognize the extent to which a conservatism in the current moment could be radicalized by almost a you know, an anticipation of and an exaggeration of threats, then I think that's one dimension along which, you know, that kind of logic of escalation is is more present in a sense than challenges to property rights. Going back to the interwar period, so one of the very major differences between our situation today and, and that of the, the 20s and the 30s is that there was still a European peasantry with millions of people living off the land. And this is something that, that you wrote about a lot in your book, Wages of Destruction and, and the way in which that shaped the Nazi war economy. So you had you know, uh, pockets of very advanced industrialization, but much of Germany and Italy remained agricultural. And in that context, the fascists and the Nazis could play on nostalgia for these religious and cultural values of an earlier time. And so the, the romantic anti-enlightenment qualities of fascism were founded on sort of real folk memories in a way that isn't the case today. And uh, I mean, one thing I was reading recently was an essay by Alberto Toscano, and he points out that today, if we look at the far right, it's the post-war era of relative full employment. It's the moment when proletarianization of the European population becomes much more thoroughgoing. It's for that time that the right often professes to hanker after. So do you think that an another key factor for the emergence of, of classical fascism, which doesn't pertain today, is the presence of those sort of pre-capitalist passions and, and folk memories that enable it to develop? That's very interesting, yes. Yeah, I mean, Jameson has that great line, doesn't he, about, you know, that you know when, you've, when the process of modernization and the state of modernity has reached a kind of terminal point when there is no longer a peasantry present in the scene, right? If, in the sense that the modernization process and the experience of modernity is defined by difference with the peasants representing the sort of traditional, the pre-modern, the non-capitalist, and that the disappearance of, the, of that outside defines a new epoch. And certainly that would draw a strong line between the interwar period and, and the present day. What's interesting here is a fairly substantial difference between the US and Europe, because in the visual, you know, in the iconography of, you know, all American politics, the farm still plays a remarkably, you know, it's still far more present than you would, than you would warrant, like the rancher, the farmer, you know, this ridiculous, America's most popular vehicle is the Ford F-150 pickup. 
And there aren't a lot of urbanites that really have call for a vehicle like that, but it it's a sort of constant memory of, well, you need one of these if you've got your own business or if you own, you know, you own your own farm or you live out, you know, in the beyond the edges of, of the city. That remains a rather important element of the far right in the United States. The the countryside urban split in terms of voting is is very, very pronounced in the US. And if you're looking at the parts of the country with really big militia movements and really dangerous paramilitary movements, you know, they're pretty rural places. Or rural isn't quite the right word. They're just because, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of small farming going on in, you know, around Portland, Oregon or in Michigan necessarily. But they're folks living outside an urban environment. And that sense of sort of the independent homesteading, which is why you need a gun you know, is still very present in the US in the way that it's pretty hard to imagine in most parts of Europe, certainly in the UK, that's just not part of the right wing imaginary to the same extent Though there is the, you know, there is the hunting, shooting, fishing wing of the Tory party, but that I think fits in a rather different box. Yes. And and there's still very much an an urban rural voting split, but yeah, you would, you would see it as comparable to the US in that way. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. But I think your point about the about this, the importance of the um, the agrarian wing to fascism is crucial. I mean, you could tie it back not just to the question of development, but also to the question of war, because both Italy and Germany are shaped in the 1920s and 1930s by the experience of, if not starvation, then hunger. And, you know, one of the reasons why the regimes are as preoccupied with the peasantry as they are, and it comes as quite a shock to the traditional agrarian classes for whom agricultural politics was really about class privilege first and foremost, is that A, the fascist regimes are actually interested in the mass of the peasants because they see them as a biological foundation of the nation, which was not, you know, elite feudal, if you like, class politics of the countryside. And B, the fascist parties, the Nazi party as parties of total war are preoccupied with the countryside in an instrumental sense because it's where you get your food from. So the battle for grain in Mussolini's case, the Reichsnährstand and the fantasies of conquest in the East in in the Hitler's case, indeed Mussolini's fantasies of of conquest in in Libya and peasant settlement there and in Ethiopia are all organised around visions of total war in which these countries imagine themselves being blockaded by who? By the British, the British Empire and the Royal Navy with their american you know helpers and so it's for that reason that you need you need food security and again you know that's very much removed from us in time in terms of the preoccupations of the present just on that point both the germans and italians can hardly have been ignorant of the extent to which agriculture had been mechanized particularly in britain and the numbers working on the land on the british isles had really dropped dramatically why did they not see that as the future well, because they think of that as producing a, a deeply unhealthy social structure, unhealthy in the sense that it, they think of that as producing a, a deeply unhealthy social structure, unhealthy in the sense that it means that, as in the British case, the overwhelming majority of the people live in towns and cities, and unhealthy also in the sense that it comes at the price of a massive dependence on imported food. You know, Britain imports about half its calories and protein before before World War One, and continues in that kind of state. Of dependence through to the 1950s, when as people like David Edgerton have shown, actually Britain becomes much more self-sufficient in agricultural produce than it had been for almost a century. 
as a result of you know nationalist pro-farming palm subsidy type policies more along continental European lines in, in an old kind of way. So, you know, this doesn't mean that, that either the Italian fascists or the Nazis oppose mechanization as such. You know, Mussolini has pictures taken of himself driving tractors. And in the giant agrarian empire that the Nazis imagine in Eastern Europe, this will be mechanized. It will be fully electrified. There will be roads, railway infrastructure, but it will take place on a kind of American scale. And so the crucial thing that you need to make that possible is land. So, you know, in the German or Italian setting, you can't have a large peasantry and mechanise agriculture. If you want a large peasantry and you want them to, however, live at modern standards of living, which requires them to be mechanised, then what you need is huge amounts of extra land. And that will then allow you to maintain much more American kind of conditions. And this is part of Hitler's love-hate relationship with America, is that in some way America represents the ideal of of a well-balanced, adequately land-rich, in other words, it has enough Lebensraum, enough living space, to sustain a healthy balance between an agrarian population and a modern society with high standards of living. And, it, you know, it's striking. It's not just people like Hitler who have this idea. Henry Ford, for instance, in the United States, you know, sees the car and the tractor, which spins off from the Ford Model T, as weapons against unhealthy urbanism because the car will enable a suburban civilization to take shape. People will be live, able, live out in the countryside. The car is thought of as a quintessentially anti-urban piece of equipment, right? Because if you live in a city, you can rely on public transport. Who would need a car? You can use railway and tram and subway. You don't need a car. It's the rural societies like France and Europe, which, which motorizes first in the European and continental Europe, and the United States, which need the car because you have these big distances. And and so that's the kind of vision that Hitler, the Nazis in particular absolutely don't oppose motorization of the countryside. It's just you need enough land so as to ensure that motorization doesn't become really a kiss of death for the, for the rural population. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.